Gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them, please, to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to take a look at Jesus' trial before the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. We'll start the narrative at verse 11. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 11, and we will go ahead and read through verse 31. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream." Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. A few weeks ago, we began to look at the trials of Jesus, and I say trials, plural, because that's exactly what it was. There was more than one trial that Jesus had to endure. Uh, the first trial, of course, was a Jewish trial, and it was a trial in which Jesus stood before the high priests and the Sanhedrin, and then there was, of course, the second trial, and that was the trial before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, which we just read about today. Two trials... Um, two trials in three parts, incidentally. Uh, the Jewish trial had three parts. Jesus was initially taken for a preliminary hearing before the official high priest. His name was Annas. He was the hereditary high priest. 
And then Jesus was ultimately taken before Caiaphas for a much longer hearing. Caiaphas was the acting high priest appointed by the Romans. And then after those two hearings, Jesus was ultimately taken before the entire body uh, of the Sanhedrin, the highest body of authority within Judaism in the first century. And it was by the Sanhedrin that Jesus was ultimately condemned to death because of the charge of blasphemy, claiming to be God. So that was the Jewish trial. But of course, in the first century, the Jews had no authority to execute anyone for capital crimes. That was a power that was vested in the Romans alone. And so if they wanted to rid Jesus, be rid of Jesus for all, if they wanted to get rid of him and, and have him condemned to death, they had to take him before the Roman authorities. And that meant that Jesus had to go before Pontius Pilate, which he did. And this too was a trial in three parts. He appeared before Pilate early in the morning after he had been condemned to death by the Sanhedrin. Uh, Pilate found Jesus innocent of any crime against the state and therefore sent him off to King Herod. Herod was the uh, titular ruler of Galilee, where Jesus had come from. And then Herod, of course, decided not to pass judgment on Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate ultimately rendered the verdict that would result in the Lord's death. So we have two trials. We are now in the second trial. The first part of that second trial is Jesus stands before the highest ranking Roman authority in this part of the world, this man named Pontius Pilate. Now we ask the question, who was Pilate? He obviously plays a critical role in the story of Jesus, in the Lord's death, and indeed even in the Lord's resurrection. But who was this man, Pontius Pilate? What do we know about him? Well, the first thing to say is that Pontius Pilate was a real person. We know a great deal about him from two historians, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the second century and wrote a great deal about events from this time period. And then there was the Roman historian Tacitus, and both of these men mentioned Pontius Pilate on more than one occasion. Uh, interestingly enough, however, it wasn't until the 1960s that we had any hard evidence and when I say hard evidence, I mean archaeological evidence of the existence of Pontius Pilate. Um, we had the writings of Josephus and Tacitus, but it wasn't until 1968 when there was an archaeological dig being done around Caesarea Maritima that they uncovered a stone that actually bore the inscription of Pontius Pilate uh, that stated who he was, that he was the procurator of this portion of the Roman Empire, and actually gave the dates in which he was the procurator. And it matched up perfectly with the New Testament witness. Uh, those of you who have been with me to the Holy Land, we go to Caesarea Maritima. It's one of the first stops that we make. It's significant in biblical history because it's where the Apostle Paul was ultimately held for almost three years. Paul, you may recall, was arrested in Jerusalem, and then he was transported to Caesarea Maritima. That is Caesarea by the sea. There were a number of Caesareas in the ancient world. This was the headquarters of the Roman government in this part of the world. Pilate, as you know from Matthew's gospel, was in Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, but this was not Roman headquarters. Roman headquarters were several miles up the coast at Caesarea. The emperor would, or the, the uh, governor, the representative of the emperor, would from time to time come to Jerusalem but only for the festivals, because these were big events. Otherwise, his headquarters was on the coast. 
And it was there on the coast that this, what is known as the pilot stone was uncovered. And if you go to Caesarea Maritima today, you can see an exact copy of that stone and where it was located. The original now stands in a museum uh, in Jerusalem. But it is just further evidence of the trustworthiness of the biblical witness. But in terms of what we know about Pilate and his life and his career, as I said, we really get most of that evidence from Josephus and Tacitus. And what we learn is that Pontius Pilate was an officer in the Roman army. He was a soldier. He had served under Germanicus in the wars of the Rhine. He was a bit of a soldier of fortune, and he was a social climber. Um, he wanted to make it to the top. And in those days, the best way to do that was either by political alliances or by marital alliances. And that is exactly what Pontius Pilate did. He forged a marital alliance. He married a woman by the name of Claudia Procula. She was the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. Now, she was notorious. It was a good move. Uh, politically speaking, for Pontius Pilate, but the marriage was a moral catastrophe. Uh, her mother, Claudia's mother, was notoriously immoral in a day when Rome was notoriously immoral and decadent. In fact, Augustus Caesar once commented that he wished he had been born wifeless and had died childless. So he had no real regard for his wife and his granddaughter and his daughter were really just as bad as his wife. So this was a notorious woman. Uh, she married Pontius Pilate and it was because of her connection with the imperial household that Pilate had the post that he did. It was a rather minor imperial post. Uh, he was a governor. Governors were powerful people in the first century, but this post, governor of Judea, uh, was not a highly sought-after post. It'd be like being an ambassador. It's one thing to be the ambassador to the court of St. James or the ambassador to France or the ambassador to Russia. It's another thing to be the ambassador to some third world country. And that's basically what it was like for Pontius Pilate. He was a powerful man, but he was in a backwater of the Roman Empire. And furthermore, it was a place that was wrought with division and controversy um, there were always efforts to overthrow Roman rule in this part of the world because they were so far removed from the imperial capital. And it was the responsibility, the heavy responsibility of the governor to maintain peace. This, of course, was the age of the famed Pax Romana. And so Pilate had a heavy burden on himself. He assumed his post in the year AD 26. And when he did so, he did it in a brutal and insensitive way. Tacitus and Josephus both record the fact that when he assumed his post in AD 26, he marched Roman legions into the city of Jerusalem under the cover of darkness, but bearing the imperial standards. These were large images of the emperor that the soldiers would carry, and in the same way that armies in the past perhaps carried battle flags that were representative of their regiment, and they were highly esteemed by the soldiers. Well, that's the way it was with these imperial standards, except that they bore the image of the emperor, and the soldiers actually venerated them. There was a cult of emperor worship, and it was highly um, encouraged, particularly within the army. It was a way of encouraging soldiers to be loyal to the empire, 
And so when these soldiers marched into Jerusalem, it was very controversial. It was controversial for a whole host of reasons. One, of course, was that it was a reminder to the Jews that they were a vassal state, that they were a conquered people, which was an insult to them. But to display those imperial standards, which really represented um, you know, polytheism, uh, a false religion, this was really rubbing salt in the wound for the Jews. It was an extremely insensitive thing to do. Um, previous governors had been very much aware of the fact that they had to tread lightly when it came to the Jewish people. But that was not the case with Pontius Pilate. He came in with force. Now, some have pointed out that he came into the cover of darkness. That is true. But the fact that he came in under the cover of darkness indicates that he knew full well what he was doing. The fact that he displayed those imperial banners shows just how brutish he could really be. He was a hard man. He was a soldier, and he knew how to maintain peace the way the Romans did it, and that was by force of arms. We get actually a picture in the Gospels of just how cruel and insensitive this man could be. Keep your finger there in Matthew and skip ahead, if you will, to Luke's Gospel to the 13th chapter. Luke chapter 13, verse 1, makes a reference to Pontius Pilate before we ever come to the trial of Jesus, before we're ever actually introduced to him in a formal way. Luke chapter 13, verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, what that is a reference to and of course, they're coming to Jesus. They have a question about why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, basically. But the context here is that apparently there were Galileans who were in Jerusalem worshiping in the temple. That's what it means that their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. And Pontius Pilate, the governor, sent soldiers into that most sacred of spaces, into the temple itself, and slaughtered these people while they were actually in the act of worship and thereby mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. So this is the man that was the governor of this particular region. He was also notorious because at one point he decided to build an aqueduct into the city of Jerusalem. It was an aqueduct that carried water 55 miles into the city. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know there's no readily available water source. And so this aqueduct was a great benefit to the city. But Pontius Pilate decided to pay for that by basically raiding the official treasury of the Jews and seizing the money that was known as Corbin, that is money that was laid up for the elderly and for parents. And this was something that caused great controversy among the Jews. How dare he lay his hands on this sacred treasury? And a riot began to erupt. They surrounded the imperial palace and Pilate sent out soldiers in civilian dress to infiltrate the crowd. And then, at a given signal, they threw off their garments, and with clubs and with swords, they beat the people into submission. So if you want to know who it was that Jesus was going to stand trial before, this was the man. This was Pontius Pilate. He was a cruel, insensitive, brutish 
kind of man. And yet what's so amazing is that when you turn to this trial here in Matthew chapter 27 and in the other gospels, one of the things that you will notice is that this man, completely out of character, is surprisingly just, at least in the opening stages of the trial. To begin with, he refused to simply rubber stamp the Sanhedrin's verdict. Caiaphas and the members of the Sanhedrin, having condemned Jesus to death, naturally assumed that when they sent Jesus off to Pontius Pilate, the Pilate would simply agree with their decision and have Jesus put to death. Now, Pilate, again, was a shrewd politician. He knew it was his responsibility to maintain peace in that part of the world, and that meant that he had to cooperate with the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the other members of the Sanhedrin. So they naturally assumed that because this was a religious matter and Pilate had no interest in Jewish religious matters, that he would simply rubber stamp their decision, turn Jesus over to be executed, and that would be the end of it. But much to their surprise, when Jesus appeared before Pilate, he didn't do that. Instead, we're told he reopened the entire case. The first thing he wanted was to know what the charge was that was brought against this man. Why was he standing before the Roman governor? What crime had he committed that was deserving of death? Now, that must have caught the Jewish religious leaders completely flat-footed. That was not something that they were necessarily prepared for. As a matter of fact, they didn't have any legitimate charge. If you turn to John chapter 18, what they say when they are asked what the charge is, they simply reply, we would not have brought him before you if he was not guilty. But Pilate is not satisfied with that. He's not satisfied with the fact that they think he's deserving of death. He wants to know specifically what charge, what crime has he committed? This is something that's very important about Roman law that we need to keep in mind. The Romans maintained peace, but they had a very developed and complex system of justice. They have laws, and those laws were designed to protect particularly Roman citizens. It's been said of the ancient world that Judea gave the world religion, the Greeks gave the world letters, and the Romans gave the world law. And we see, even in the New Testament, a number of occasions where Roman law actually benefited Christians, particularly the Apostle Paul, for example. Paul, on more than one occasion, was arrested for preaching the gospel. And on more than one occasion, the only reason he escaped being executed was because he was a Roman citizen, and there were laws that protected Roman citizens. That's the reason why Paul was ultimately sent to Caesarea Maritima after he'd been arrested in Jerusalem. The crowd tried to tear him limb from limb, but the Roman soldiers came out, they seized him, they took him into custody, and they discovered at that point that Paul was a Roman citizen. And so he was sent off in protective custody to Caesarea Maritima. He was tried before two Roman governors, and ultimately he appealed to Caesar, which was the right of every Roman citizen. And that's how Paul ultimately ended up in Rome, in the great capital. It was because of his rights as a Roman citizen. And in this particular instance, it appears that Pontius Pilate is going to follow the Roman law. He wants to know what the charges are that are being brought against Christ. And as I said, the Jewish religious leaders had no legitimate charges. 
But because the governor is insistent, they begin to manufacture charges. Keep your finger there in Matthew and skip ahead again to Luke. We're going to be doing a little bit of this because it's really the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that give us a comprehensive picture of exactly what happened to Christ at this point. So we have to take a look at all of them to get a full-orbed picture of exactly what was transpiring. So Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 2. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, there was a sense in which the first two charges were rather minor, uh, and, and not only minor, but to be perfectly honest with you, Pilate was able to see through them. He knew they were trumped up charges. We found this man misleading our nation, the whole nation. Pilate realized that that simply wasn't true. Furthermore, this idea of forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, uh, Jesus had not done that. Uh, this too was a lie. Jesus himself had said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But this last part really was the serious charge, and it was the one that caught the, um, the governor's attention. And that was the charge that Jesus was claiming to be a king. I pointed out to you before that the proclamation of the Christian gospel in the first century was highly controversial, particularly when the Apostle Paul began to go out into other portions of the Roman world and preach the message that Jesus was Lord. This was the earliest Christian proclamation. The earliest Christian proclamation was not that you are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man may boast. We all know that that is what Martin Luther said is the message of the gospel. It's the doctrine of the standing church. It is the doctrine of justification, and certainly it is at the heart of the gospel. But the earliest Christian proclamation, the one that got people into trouble, the one that ultimately got Peter martyred and Paul condemned to death, was this claim that Jesus is Lord. Because to say that Jesus is Lord in the first century meant that Caesar was not and the Romans claimed that there was one ultimate ruler over all men everywhere in the world, and that was the emperor. So this was a serious charge, but it was a manufactured charge. Everybody knew that Jesus was claiming to be a king, but not the kind of king that was a threat to the Roman Empire. At any rate, Pilate brings Jesus in, and he questions him. He says, are you a king? And Jesus makes it very clear that he is a king, but not a king in an earthly sense. His kingdom was not of this world. And it was at that point that it must have dawned on Pontius Pilate that really what this was all about was not any serious charge against Jesus. This was a religious matter. Okay, he was claiming to be a king, but it was a spiritual kingdom. That's not a threat to the empire. And Matthew chapter 27, verse 18 says, he realized that they had delivered Jesus over out of envy. Pilate saw through the whole ruse. He knew exactly what this was all about. This was envy. They were jealous of Jesus. And we have seen this jealousy growing throughout the gospel narrative. Jesus was a worker of great miracles. 
Even the, the, the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees acknowledged this fact. They said, no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. So they knew that Jesus was a miracle worker. Furthermore, Jesus was an extraordinary teacher. And when he spoke, he spoke as one having authority. And the people were naturally drawn to Jesus. And so the people were, the religious leaders, that is, were envious of Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus. And Pilate recognized that. And so Pilate brought Jesus out before the crowds, and he declared that having examined him, he found no fault in him. And at that point, he declared the verdict, absolvo. He absolved Jesus of all crimes deserving of death. Now, as I said, up to this point, Pilate's actions are highly commendable. He follows all of the rules established by Roman law. All four of the elements of a Roman trial were carefully followed. Charges were brought, evidence was examined, a defense was made, and a verdict was rendered. And Jesus, according to the rule of law, was found innocent of all crimes deserving of death. Now, as I said, this is rather extraordinary for Pilate, given what we know about Pilate, to have acted in this way. And we have to ask the self, ourselves the question, why did Pilate work so hard? Because he really did work so hard to acquit Jesus, to get Jesus off. Why would he do this? It would have been a whole lot easier for him as the Roman governor, hoping to keep the peace, being a shrewd politician, wanting to cooperate with the Jewish religious leaders so as to keep the peace. It would have been a whole lot easier for him to simply rubber stamp the decision and send Jesus off to be executed. Why did Pilate work so hard to acquit the Lord? Well, the Gospels indicate to us at least two reasons why Pilate worked so hard to acquit Jesus. The first reason was obviously that he was impressed with Jesus. Pilate, as I said, was a soldier. He had, sent me, he had seen men fall in battle. He had say, seen men quake in the face of their own demise. And yet here was Jesus, accused by his own people, standing trial before a foreign power. And yet Jesus showed no signs of fear whatsoever. He didn't show any signs of being anxious or worried. He seemed to be completely in control from start to finish. That must have been very impressive to a man like Pontius Pilate. In fact, Pilate even admitted. He said, look, I have power to destroy you or to release you. And yet Jesus replies, what? You would have no power unless it was given to you from above. Jesus had a serenity even in the midst of this trial that must have impressed this man, Pontius Pilate. But Matthew indicates that there to us that there was another reason why Pilate worked to acquit Jesus. And that had to do with a dream that his wife had had. Procula, his wife, had had a dream, and she had suffered greatly as a consequence of this dream. Now, in the ancient world, uh, people took dreams seriously. Uh, they believed that dreams were sometimes... Uh, the means by which the gods would speak to them. They, they were superstitious. They believed in portents and so forth. And so when Procula came to Pilate and said, don't have anything to do with this man, it probably put a shiver through his spine. A Frank Morrison wrote a little book some years ago called Who Moved the Stone? 
And he has a wonderful imaginative way of seeing how this might have unfolded. You can imagine what happened. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is taken off in the early hours of the night where he has that preliminary hearing we said before Annas, the hereditary high priest. That's relatively brief. He is then taken off before Caiaphas. Uh, Caiaphas examines Jesus, realizes that this is a serious matter, and he's going to call the whole Sanhedrin together. But he knows that the Sanhedrin has no power to put this man to death. And so he probably at that point, Morrison says, sends off a message to the governor, informing the governor that early in the morning they are going to come and bring before him a prisoner. So just imagine, Morrison said, Pilate is sitting there at the dinner table. His wife, Claudia Procula, is across the table from him. A servant comes in, wants to speak to the governor, informs him of the fact that the Jewish religious leaders are going to bring a prisoner before him early in the morning on some charge deserving of death. When the servant leaves, Procula, sitting at the opposite end of the table, says, what's this all about? And Pilate says, well, it's just a, a matter of the Jews being upset about a man that they think is deserving of death. Apparently, he has committed some crime. They want to have him crucified. And they return to their dinner. But that night, Procula is troubled in her dreams about this man, Jesus. She went to bed with this man on her mind this matter that was before her husband. She gets up early in the morning. She comes down to breakfast. Her husband's not there. She knows immediately where he's gone, and she sends a message. Have nothing to do with this man. That's the way Frank Morrison sort of depicts it, and I think it's a wonderful picture of may, the way it may have unfolded. At any rate, it fills Pilate with a sense of dread. There was something about this Jesus. This Jesus was powerful. He was known as a miracle worker. He was known as a teacher. He had a sense of control over his emotions. And now his wife comes to him with this warning about this dream. He finds himself in a difficult position, and he wants to get out of it. And he seeks to do that. He does any number of things to pass the buck, as it were. The first thing that Pilate did was he tried to send Jesus off to King Herod. That's recorded in Luke chapter 23. Sends, Herod, sends him off to Herod. Now, Herod was a titular king. Uh, the Romans, when they came in and conquered a territory, would oftentimes allow the local leaders or local chieftains to continue to govern the people so long as they were loyal to the Roman Empire. It was a very effective way of ruling in the ancient world. And Herod was very cooperative. All the Herods had been very cooperative. It was a dynastic uh, family and dynastic term. The Herods had all been very cooperative with the Romans. And so Pilate thought that if he could simply send Jesus off to Herod, Herod perhaps could deal with this because Herod was at least part Jewish and understood these Jewish religious matters better than he did. But Herod realized what Pilate was trying to do, pass the buck. And the text says that he had a little bit of fun with Jesus. He tried to persuade Jesus to perform a trick, a miracle. But when he got nowhere with Jesus, he immediately sent Jesus back to Pilate. Now, realizing that Herod was not going to take this matter out of his hands, Pilate tried a second attempt, made a second attempt to somehow get rid of the problem. 
Again, he found no fault in Jesus. He was impressed with Jesus. He had been warned by his wife in a dream that he should not be troubled with Jesus. So what was he going to do? Well, he offered to punish Jesus. He thought perhaps this would satisfy the people, that if he would take Jesus out, punish him, have him beaten, publicly humiliated, perhaps that would be enough to satisfy them, and then he could release Jesus. But we're told that the people would have none of it. No, they wanted Jesus not punished. They wanted Jesus destroyed. And that's when Pilate presents them with a third option, a third attempt on his own part to get rid of Jesus once and for all. He presented the people with a choice. And that's what we read about here in today's gospel lesson, beginning at verse 20. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Now, who was Barabbas? Well, Barabbas, according to the Gospels, was a robber, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. He's described as a robber in John chapter 18, as a murderer in Luke chapter 23 and Mark 15. But he was really more than that. He really was an insurrectionist. He was a troublemaker. He was what we would call today a terrorist. He was a man who was attempting or had attempted to overthrow Roman rule on more than one occasion, and he was willing to destroy anybody who got in his way. So he really was a notorious individual. And perhaps Pilate thought that by presenting the crowd with a choice between a terrorist and this man who simply had some odd ideas about religion, certainly they would choose Jesus the Christ over this man Barabbas. There's something else here, just as an aside. Some of the earliest manuscripts refer to Barabbas as Jesus Barabbas. Understand that in the first century, Jesus was a common name. Um, we consider it to be an unusual name because it's the name of our Lord. But in the first century, the name Jesus or the name Joseph or Mary or James, those were very common names, just like um, John or Mary Smith are common names today. The name Jesus was not all that unusual in the first century. So it may very well have been that Pilate was playing a game with the people. He's saying, you want a Jesus? You, you, you want the blood of a Jesus? I'll give you a Jesus. Here is Jesus Barabbas. Choose this man or choose Jesus the Christ. And he expected, of course, that what they were going to say is, we'll take Jesus the Christ. We certainly don't want this terrorist released on the population. But it was just the opposite. The crowd began to chant, free Barabbas, free Barabbas, free Barabbas, at which point Pilate asked, and again, if the names are similar, you begin to get a picture of this, of what was happening here, the drama. At this point, Pilate then turns to the people and he said, well, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? In other words, if you want me to release Jesus, who is called Barabbas, what do you want me to do with the one who is called Jesus, the Christ? And the people shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, just so you get an idea of how common that name Jesus was, keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 27 for a moment and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. 
This is the beginning, as you've heard me say before, of the missionary era. It's the story of Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. They traveled from Antioch down the coast and took a boat from a place called Seleucia over to the Isle of Cyprus. And there they began to preach the gospel. And we're told that when they arrived on the Isle of Cyprus, they immediately encountered opposition. We'll begin reading the text at verse 6. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus means the son of Jesus. Bar-Abbas means the son, Bar-Abbas, the son of the father or the son of Abbas. So you can see even here, his real name was Elamus, verse 8, but he was known as Bar-Jesus. So this was a common name. So Pilate is presenting the people with a choice. Again, you want a Jesus? I'll give you a Jesus. You can have this Jesus, Jesus Bar-Abbas, or you can have this Jesus, Jesus the Christ. Which one will you choose? And the people shouted, we want Barabbas crucify Jesus. And verse 24 of Matthew chapter 27 says, the governor began to realize that a riot was beginning. Things were getting out of hand, and Pilate was frightened. He was frightened by three things in particular. He was frightened probably because of Jesus. The ancients believed that sometimes the gods did come down and masquerade as human beings. They did believe in demigods as well, that there were people who were part divine and part human. And because Jesus was a great miracle worker, because Jesus was a captivating speaker, it may very well have been that Pilate, being superstitious, listening to dreams, may very well have been fearful of Jesus. He was also, because as I said, he was a shrewd politician, fearful of the crowd, fearful of the Jewish religious leaders. Now, he didn't like Caiaphas. He didn't particularly care for Herod. He didn't care for the members of the Sanhedrin. They were troublemakers as far as he was concerned, but he was forced to work with them in order to maintain the peace. If he couldn't maintain the peace, what was going to happen? He would be removed from his post. And he was a social climber. He needed his position. But the thing that he feared the most was not Jesus and not the crowd, but the wrath of Caesar. And the Jewish religious leaders knew that. And that's why when you turn to John chapter 19, when Pilate says that he's going to release Jesus, that he absolves him of any guilt, they begin to shout, this man claims to be a king. We have no king but Caesar. And if you release him, you are no friend of Caesar's. In other words, they were saying, look, you release this man, and we're going to tell the emperor about it. A man who claims to be a king, a man who claims to be sovereign, a man who claims to be the Lord, and you release him. And that's when we're told fear really gripped the heart of Pontius Pilate. And he hands this innocent man, even though he knows him to be innocent, even though he's washed his hands of the situation, he turns him over to be executed. Now we have this remarkable scene in which the governor performs this very symbolic act. It's in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, 
saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, and yet he handed him over to be killed, but he didn't want to be responsible for it. He had the authority, but he didn't want to be responsible for it. And so he comes out and he performs this very dramatic act. He has a bowl of water brought. He announces Jesus to be innocent. He washes his hands in the presence of the people. He says, I am not responsible for this man's death. Take him and do it yourself. But then the text says, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. In spite of the fact that Pontius Pilate had worked very hard to acquit Jesus, in the end, he feared an earthly ruler more than he feared the Son of God. And even though he claimed to be innocent, let me tell you something, folks. He was no more innocent of the blood of Jesus Christ than Judas was. You'll recall that Judas had betrayed Jesus earlier in this chapter for 30 pieces of silver. And then when he felt guilty about it, when his conscience was pricked, what did he do? He brought the money back to the Jewish religious leaders, and he tried to return it. He said, look, I have sinned. He acknowledged the fact that he had sinned. He said, I have betrayed innocent blood. He acknowledged the fact that Jesus was innocent, and he tried to turn the money back over to them. But what did they say? They said, we have nothing to do with this. This was your choice. You must live with it. Well, Pontius Pilate was trying to do the exactly the same thing that Judas Iscariot had done. He was trying to absolve himself. Pilate, having absolved Jesus, was now trying to absolve himself of this man's death, and he couldn't do it. He could not wash himself free of his guilt any more than Lady Macbeth could wash herself free of her guilt. We have an old hymn that asks the question, what can wash away my sin? And the answer that comes back is nothing but the blood of Jesus. We said in our study last week that that's one of the reasons why Judas Iscariot went out and hanged himself. That was the difference between Judas Iscariot and Peter. They were both guilty of the same crime, the same sin against God. They had both denied the Son of Man. They had both, in a sense, betrayed him. And both were sorry for it. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Judas went out and wept bitterly. Judas knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he had betrayed innocent blood. He wanted to atone for it. But what he did not understand, but Peter did understand, was that there is only one Savior of mankind, and that is Christ himself. None of us can absolve ourselves, no matter how hard we try. And so Pilate has come down to us in history as this great villain. He started off well, but he finished by betraying the Son of Man. Well, what happened? Verse 27 tells us the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and there they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, they gave him false homage, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And they mocked him and stripped him of his robe and put on his clothes and led him away to be crucified. This 
you see, is a return to the theme that we have been studying throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We said that the one continuous thread that runs through the Gospel of Matthew from the very beginning, from the story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, right through to the present day, is this theme of the kingdom of God and the kingship of Jesus Christ. That's what we have, is this continuous theme. Jesus was declared to be the king there in that manger with wise men coming from the east. When he begins his public ministry, the forerunner, John the Baptist, tells the people to repent. Why? Because he said the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus began his own public ministry, he was proclaiming the same message, that the king had arrived. And this is the theme that runs throughout the gospel. And here we are in the final stages, here in this very evil moment, they're in the presence of these pagan people, and yet they are mocking Jesus as what? As a king. This is the theme that runs through. And ultimately, when Jesus is taken out to that hill outside the city wall and crucified there on that tree, the placard above his head bears the inscription, King of the Jews. Now, what's so tragic about these verses 27 through 30 is that when you look at Jesus at this point, having been scourged by the Romans, his back in ribbons, his brow bleeding from that crown of thorns, spit clinging to his face and to his beard, Jesus hardly looked like a king. And yet no earthly ruler sitting on any throne at any point in history, at the height of his or her power, no earthly ruler ever looked more or was ever more legitimate as a king than Jesus Christ at this moment. He was still the king of kings. He was still the Lord of lords. Every time I read these verses 27 through 30, I'm reminded, again, of the trustworthiness of the biblical record. Those of you who've been with me to the Holy Land, one of the places that we go and visit is a place in Jerusalem called the Eke Homo. It means, behold the man. It's the Latin words that Pontius Pilate spoke when he brought Jesus out before the crowds. He said, behold the man, the man that you accuse. And at that place, which was the site of the governor's palace, you can go down to the first century level. It's one of the most moving sites, in my opinion, in all the Holy Land. And there on that first century level, at the place where these Roman soldiers would actually hold the prisoners in the first century, you can see a, a portion of the floor that has carvings on it. And one of the carvings in the center is a pie-shaped carving. And this is known as the Game of the Kings, the Game of the Kings. And what Roman soldiers would do, understand that, as I said, Judea, Galilee, this was a backwater of the Roman Empire. It was tough to be a Roman soldier. It was even tougher to be a Roman soldier in this portion of the empire, where there was so much upheaval and so much violence, and your life was constantly threatened by these insurrectionists. And so Roman soldiers in this part of the world could be very brutal, and they were always looking for a means of just sort of venting their frustrations. And this is one of the things that they did. They would play this called the game of the king. They would have this carving on the floor, 
pie-shaped, and in each one of the shapes, there would be an image, perhaps of a crown or a robe or a scepter, and they would cast dice. And however the dice came up, the soldier who cast the dice had the opportunity to choose one of those pie shapes and to use it as a means of abusing the prisoner. In other words, if he cast the dice and it fell to the reed, to the scepter, he would take something and he would put it in the prisoner's hand and he would abuse him. If it was the crown that appeared, then he would take the crown and he would make it out of thorns, the long thorned briar, and he would pierce the brow of the victim. This was something that soldiers did and we actually have hard evidence of it having taken place. And this is what they did to the Son of God. You can actually be standing on the very site where this happened to Jesus Christ. It's one of the most moving things to stand there looking at that, reading these verses and singing that hymn, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? And of course, we were there. We were all there. This is what Pilate did, and it's what people still do. The king was despised, and unfortunately, the king is still despised in many portions of the world today, and so is his kingdom. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way. He said, evangelical doctrine is at a discount these days. Evangelical here is is really a, a reference to the good news. That's what the word gospel means. Euangelion means glad tidings. He says, the good news is at a discount these days. Holy living is censured and spiritual mindedness is derided. Few nowadays will side with the truth their fathers bled for. The day for covenanting to follow Jesus in times of evil and shame appears to have gone by. Yet though men turn round upon us and say, do you call your gospel divine? Are you so preposterous as to believe that your religion comes from God and is to subdue the world? We boldly answer, yes. Even as beneath the peasant's garb and the wan visage of the Son of Mary, we can discern the wonderful, the counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Beneath the simple form of a despised gospel, we can perceive the royal image of divine truth. Even though Jesus was there, bleeding, bruised, battered, abused, beneath all of that, you can still see the image of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And beneath this gospel, which is despised and hated by the world today, you can still see the image of divine truth. Now, bear in mind, Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote those words in the 1880s. What was true then is even more true in our own day and age. If we learn anything at all from Pontius Pilate, my friends, it is this. There can be no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ. That's what Pilate wanted to be. He wanted to be neutral. He wanted to satisfy everybody. He wanted to release Jesus. On the other hand, he wanted to satisfy the bloodlust of the Jewish religious leaders. But in the end, he decided that he couldn't do both. He had to choose. 
and so do you and I. Make no mistake about it, Jesus Christ stands before us each at some point in our lives. Maybe today he's standing before you in the course of this Bible study, but he stands before you as much as he stood before that Roman governor 2,000 years ago. And he forces us to make the decision. The crowds made the decision. They found they would rather have an evil insurrectionist than to have the Son of God. And Pilate made a decision. He feared men. He feared Caesar more than he feared the Son of God. But they all made their decision, and you and I have to make our decision. And with Jesus Christ, it is all or nothing. Men will always choose an earthly ruler that they can somehow manage and manipulate more than they will choose the Son of God because there's no manipulating Jesus Christ. He demands absolute fealty, absolute obedience. You ask him, are you a king? As Pilate asked him, he answers, yes, I am. I am your king. And one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Listen, when Pilate awoke that morning, and went into that hall, what is pavement? In that chair of judgment, he probably thought it was going to be a normal day for the governor. He dealt with this sort of thing on a regular basis. Instead, he found himself faced with the greatest trial of his career and with the greatest decision that he would ever make. A decision for or against the Savior of the world. We need to understand that that is the decision that we all have to make. It's the decision that Jesus Christ forces upon us. During the season of Advent, we remember that Jesus Christ came in great humility. He was born in abject poverty. He appeared as a helpless babe born in a manger. But that helpless babe grew to manhood. He was despised and rejected by men. He was unjustly condemned to death. He died and was buried in a pauper's grave. But he rose again, and he will come again with power and great glory, and there will be no neutrality then. Where do you stand when it comes to Jesus Christ? He presents us all with a choice that we must make. It's absolute rejection or it's absolute obedience. Next week, we're going to take a look with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This will be our last class prior to our Christmas holiday. So Rachel's asking me, are we having class next week? And we are. We're going to have one last class before the Christmas break, and we'll take a look at the crucifixion of Jesus. A little off preparing in just a few weeks to celebrate Christmas. But as I said, these two events are directly linked. Jesus was born in Bethlehem for the express purpose of what? Of dying on the cross, of paying the price for our sins. When the angels appeared to the shepherds there out in the fields, 
keeping watch over their flocks by night, they said, we bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A savior. And how did he save mankind? Not by being born, but rather by dying. The significance of Bethlehem is the fact that it's the first step on the road that ultimately leads to Calvary. So next week, we'll take a look at what some might consider the end of the story, but we know to actually begin the story. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you today. This is holy ground on which we stand. Jesus, the innocent Son of God, standing trial before a temporal ruler, the eternal one, being condemned by a mere man, a man who wanted to remain neutral. But when it comes to you, there's no way of remaining neutral. We must choose this day. Will we embrace Jesus Christ or will we reject him? We must be hot, we must be cold, but we cannot be lukewarm. That's what Pilate was, and he was lost forever. God, grant us the grace to embrace Jesus Christ and to be willing, if necessary, to suffer for him. For we know that the sufferings of this present time, as the apostle reminds us, are not worth comparing to the glory that is Christ and the glory that will be ours who love and serve him. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you. We'll see you next week, God willing.